When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hi, guys. I'm Jim. Uh, I'm a Leicester City fan uh, for the EPL Roundtable. You can find me on Twitter at JimKnightTweets. Hi, I'm Jake, a Newcastle fan, and you can get me on Twitter at JakeDrackmanWithTwins. Hi, I'm Steve McGookin. I'm a Spurs fan based in Belfast, and I'm the former chairman of the New York Spurs Supporters Club. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, guys. And an early congratulations for uh, Jim for winning the FA Cup Leicester there. So uh, we'll obviously get into that a bit later. Um, Obviously, one of the side stories that surrounded that FA Cup final was that there were fans in stands. And boy, did they have reactions to some of the uh, VAR decisions. And then obviously just a sublime goal from Tielemans. Obviously, Premier League fans going to start getting back into stands this week. Um, Did seeing fans on site significantly impact your viewing experience or or enjoyment of the game? Unless one of you was surprisingly there and I didn't know about it. I wasn't surprisingly there um, or unsurprisingly there. I wasn't there at all. But it did significantly impact my um, enjoyment of the game, probably because I was invested by one of the teams involved. I don't know. I think it, it does always help because it creates more of an atmosphere that I think will affect the flow of the game a bit more. Like I think you'll, I think one of the key things for Leicester um, during the FA Cup final was that our fan base was extremely vocal and you could kind of tell that on TV. Sometimes you can hear one set of fans dominating over another. And there were a lot of quote unquote neutrals there as well, because of the way that they distributed the tickets, it wasn't 50, 50 between the fan bases. There was quite a lot going to the local uh, Brent County council workers uh, which is like Wembley's borough, essentially, um, which is great. And that's been the case a few times for the test events and stuff. But um, the Leicester fans certainly made uh, the most of their opportunity. And I think that definitely helped uh, the team. There were several comments about it from the players after the match. Now, maybe that's revisionist history, because if you win, then you kind of think that the fans have something to do with it. But um, I know Vardy mentioned it and I know Tielemans mentioned it both in their um post-match interviews, and I think Casper Schmeichel as well on another platform um, did. So they clearly felt like it spurred them on. Um, and yeah, I think it will have an overwhelmingly good effect for the last round. I mean, it's a bit of a weird situation that you get fans back for one round of matches. Um, but it will be a nice kind of end point to the season, I guess, or two rounds of matches, technically, if you've got a match midweek, I guess. Um but yeah, so I think it will it will absolutely help uh, the players because God knows I bet they need to rest by now, um, given all the kind of concertina matches that have been crammed into the last 15 months um, since football came back. And yeah, I think it, it will undoubtedly help, but it's just kind of the first step and I hope it just goes 
um, safely, albeit the the Tottenham game on um, on Sunday as well. So I'm looking forward to getting back. I managed to get a ticket through the ballot because I didn't get one for Wembley, so it kind of gave you an advantage. You couldn't do both. Um, that was the way it was done through Leicester. So if you got a ticket to Wembley, which obviously was the priority, you couldn't enter the ballot for the Tottenham game. And because of the fact that the majority of the tickets, I think all the tickets actually are home fans, we, we stood a decent chance. So I'll be in the stands for the first time in over a year on, on Sunday, which I'm very excited about and kind of figure that all these test events have happened and hopefully everything will go off without a hitch. Yeah, it's, it's, you've got to think it's a, a good thing. It definitely, it's definitely going to add to the viewing experience, even watching on the telly, because I think things have seemed a little bit, um, I don't know, just a little bit empty. I'm not not trying to to put a pun in there, but it does seem a little bit empty just watching it on the on the telly. And you just sometimes if you've got the for the um, inputted crowd noise, it just feels a little bit forced. But um, watching the game yesterday, um, I think the VAR. Um, decision was the main one wasn't it because he, even though it was it, it was a awful you know it bars awful it had taken away those moments but with fans in it did you know you did have that back and forth between the Leicester and the Chelsea fans and that definitely did add to it it definitely added drama even if you you are against why you could definitely agree that it added drama um and it, and the players did see, as Jim said they did seem to respond to having fans in and it when you watch it like I think it was a few a uh, few weeks ago now I had uh, I just put I think it was Sky Sports on during the day and they had like replays of old matches and watching it with fans in the ground then it was just so weird to me to watch it having watched football without fans for like, over a year now it was so weird seeing it so I think seeing it again is going to be great I think it's a step in the right direction um, I think even if it is only for two games um, you know last season we ended without fans even if we end with ten thousand fans as it is definitely feels like a positive step and it will give us all, you know, some hope that we can go back to full, full stadiums. And I think that with fans in, it definitely does add to the experience. So I think it changes the result as well. Like, I think if we had a full season with fans in this year, would you have the same three relegated teams? Would you have the same teams winning the trophies? You probably wouldn't. It does. It definitely adds to it. And it definitely does impact matches. I think Sheffield United would be a team that you'd say have, have struggled without fans. It's, it's so weird be weird for them that the last time they were in grounds they were chasing Champions League football and they're going back and they're seeing them already relegated going to the championship with a new manager it just it's so strange the way that the you know the football the footballing um world has changed without fans and um seeing how different teams are doing but I, I think that it's going to be good to have them back and I think that you know hopefully next season well hopefully in the Euros we see more fans going into matches and then again into next season, we see full stadiums because it it's definitely felt a little bit empty. And you only really realise how plastic the, the behind-closed-doors matches are when you watch fans back in and seeing what they add, even though it was a, a limited um, crowd yesterday. It definitely did add something. And, yeah, it's just going to be good to see. It. It, after the, the terrible you know 18 months the world has had with the pandemic, it's good that things are slowly starting to get back to normal, even if they never will be completely again. It is good to see some normality coming back. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Um, uh, first of all, I mean, congratulations, Jim. Uh, it was actually, I was saying to Kevin just before you arrived that I was glad you were on tonight because uh, we can all take a little bit of joy in, in your day yesterday, and that was a, just a great achievement. It's absolutely terrific to see the fans back, even in a limited 
uh, uh, level like that, and it really, you know, made the atmosphere finally with with no need for for the artificial crowd sounds, which uh, I think we'll all be happy to see the back of. And and Jake made a good point, I think, also about the effect on uh, on the league of uh, the impact of of uh, home advantage, the fact that the fans were were absent for most of the season, and uh, in a way, I'm glad that we're sort of filtering people back on the same basis. Uh, so no team seems to be uh, disadvantaged. But um, no, yesterday was yesterday was great. I mean, after the, you know, the anti-climax <laughs> really of City running away with the, with the title and, and, and then the ESL nonsense that we'll come on to, we really needed something like, like yesterday to restore our faith in, in football. And, uh, you know, I, I'm just happy that the final delivered. It would have been awful if it had been a, Another anti-climax. I mean, it was obviously won by a, a goal worthy of winning any final, and and those two Schmeichel saves towards the end, and and the VAR decision. You talked about the VAR decision. That was almost kind of VAR in microcosm for the season. You know, that's its biggest moment, the most consequential moment so far since its implementation, and and it did what it's done since it was since it was brought in. Just you know, frustrated the team that it goes against. Especially uh, fans in the ground who who can't get to see the video, for example. But it was a great day all round, and and for me, um, the defining moment was was seeing your chairman uh, Jim down on the field for the presentation, and and not just that, the fact that Schmeichel went to get him. Uh, one of the things, Kevin, that I I've always hated about the Super Bowl is that they they give the trophy to the team owner yeah. at the end of it. So uh, yesterday, <clears throat> I mean, that was just great to see that that genuine affection between the players and the ownership. I mean, you can't imagine, especially given you know what we've been through with the ESL and everything, you can't imagine many clubs where that would that would be the case. Um, as for when personally, I'll feel safe going back to a game. Unfortunately, the way things are going. Uh, with the uncertainty in, in the UK at the moment around the, the, this Indian variant, um, three or four months is actually a long time to look ahead to the start of next season. And it, it, it worries me a little bit that the government press ahead with uh, this June 21st date for removing the, the last restrictions before uh, before we know everything we need to know about this new variant. But then, you know, the, as you know, Kev, the, the CDC decision on masks last week, um, I mean, that took me a little bit by surprise, and that's mm. led to huge confusion about, you know, whether you know whether someone's vaccinated or not. I mean, we're basically being asked to trust the people around us. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still hopeful of seeing some baseball this summer, and I, I, the stadiums there seem to be on their way to, you know, substantially expanding their capacity. So um, we'll just have to wait and see what the outcome uh, is from mass spectator events in general. Uh, and, and of course, you know, in practical terms, you're not just talking about a game situation. You're talking about getting there, uh, or traveling on public transport and all, all, all the other, you know, interactions that you have as part of a game day experience. Um, so as far as uh, going to the new our new stadium, uh, and don't don't forget, I, I still haven't made it. Uh, I was in London for the Spurs Man U game on March the 15th last year. The first weekend that the prem was shut down, so uh, I'm anxious to not not get back, but go at all. But uh, but certainly under the current circumstances, I'm not going to rush it. You have to. I think you have to sort of just take every couple of weeks as it as it comes. 
Gotcha. Well, sounds like everybody was pretty delighted to to have fans back, even if they weren't their fans. And like I said, we'll we'll see that from each of our clubs this uh, coming week. And then Jim, obviously, uh, have a great time being able to to actually get there in person. I'm sure many people listening are jealous. Um, there have been a lot of other things going on, not just COVID related. Obviously, the ESL lived a very brief life, and we've already discussed it a few times now. But the lingering effect is that there's still some pretty big fan protests. Obviously, the biggest one um, being Manchester United uh, twice. Um, the first one, obviously, delaying the Liverpool match, and the second one causing Liverpool to have to have a decoy bus to even make it to the stadium. Um, I was just curious what you guys thought of, about all these protests, and if you think we'll actually see meaningful change come from it from these clubs. You know, at any level, but especially at the executive level where obviously um, there was just an Enoch out protest with Tottenham. Obviously, the the Manchester United fans have been trying to get rid of the Glazers for a while. So do you think there will be a meaningful impact from all of this? You'd like to think so. And obviously the venom with which the fans have kind of vehemently protested against their various ownerships um, after the ESL um, idea was floated have kind of been really impactful in the short term. Whether or not that carries over to next season, I've got my doubts. Like the the, the underlying um, vitriol and the kind of like the, the the need for change is still absolutely there and rightly so. But you do wonder whether, you know, after a summer's break with the European Championships in between, whether the the protests and, you know, if if we get back to quote-unquote normal life in the sense of full stadiums and things like that, whether or not people will be quite so keen to disrupt matches and um, and kind of make that, um, make that statement to their various ownerships. But I, I don't know, I would like to see it change. And I know, obviously, I think it's Tottenham that have looked at some kind of fan representation on the, the board um, in response to this, which would be yeah. great. Um, or certainly at the upper levels of the club hierarchy. And I think I think Chelsea maybe as well. I, I may have misquoted that, but I, I think I saw something similar um, suggested there with the supporters group. So that, I mean, that kind of representation would be great, but ultimately with no financial stake in the organisation as a whole, um, and I know the idea of the kind of 50 plus one um, Germany model was floated by um, a few members of, of the UK government as an immediate response to this. And it'll be interesting to see if that goes anywhere. I think that's the only real way to force meaningful change uh, in terms of the ownership. But it's also I'm also not sure how you can legislate that a private individual has to give up over half a billion dollar asset uh, in the case of all these clubs without um, legal strife and being wrapped up in red tape. So you, I don't want to be too down about it. And it's kind of great to see fans making their point and, and being heard so vocally. But ultimately, a lot of these clubs are either owned by sovereign states or by American owners in several cases who really don't see you know, what's happening on the ground, as it were, day to day with these clubs. And to all intents and purposes, certainly from the Glazers' point of view, see them as a a debt machine and a money spinning exercise, you know, to to further their personal wealth. I'm not sure that one match being cancelled and rescheduled for a week or two later is going to necessarily mean that the Glazers wake up in cold sweats and feel the need to sell Manchester United Football Club, especially if there's not um, a bid there that they deem to be appropriate. I think that's the only way, you know, we've seen, you know, Jacob be able to tell us more about Newcastle situation and has several times on, on the pod when I've been on, but it, you know, it's very, very difficult to sell a football club, especially one of that size. You have, there's a limited number of people that have the resources to buy 
that club and who's to say they're going to be any better the fit and proper persons test for ownership in the uh, English football league isn't fit for purpose it never has been and it never will be you look at you know examples like Portsmouth uh, Charlton um, Berry, various clubs that have been brought in the last kind of decade have basically been pushed to the brink of extinction um, I just don't think it can it can last in terms of meaningful change yeah I think I agree with Jim there it's diff- it is difficult um to see what's going to happen with these clubs. You're not going to be able to force the owners out. As, as Jim said, it's difficult to sell clubs. Um, and the alternative, what you're going to get, you're either going to get somebody that's, that has a lot of money um, who has made that money by being um, shrewd and, and is a good businessman and they're not going to come into football and want to spend loads of their own money without getting a return, which I guess is what you've got in the Glazers and Stan Kroenke. You know, you, you could get another billionaire like that or you could get a um, like a, a state-backed investment fund like that was going to buy Newcastle, I guess you could say that Man City is similar, who want to buy it for purposes, um, for reputational purposes, who want to, you know, sports washing, that's the term that's used for these types of people. You're not going to get a fan who's going to come in and buy the club and, you know, you're not going to get your 90s owner who who, who is, you know, made his, made his money in the local community is going to come in and run it like Jack Walker in Blackburn in the 90s. You're not going to get people like that anymore. It's either really rich people, you know, American or um, Chinese who, who want to make money, or you're going to get states or um, people from the Middle East who want to, to sports wash. You're not, so I don't really understand the end goal there. I think fan, fan um, representation on boards is good, but there's only going to be so limited power. It seems very tokenism for the Tottenham announcement anyway. It does seem like they're doing it for a little bit of good credit now, but the fan, it, what sort of power is the fan representative going to have? Probably not a lot. It's going to be advisory at best. They're not going to be have a vote in decision making because that would be that'd be ridiculous. Why would these rich people want to give fans a, a vote on their on their business that they put their money into? I just don't see that happening. Um, the Newcastle Supporters Trust at the moment is trying to raise money. Uh, they've got a pledge fund that they're hoping to eventually buy a stake in the club when it's sold. Because they've realised that the only way that they're going to have a, a meaningful say is if they put their money in, because football's about money now, and you need to have money to have a say, even if that is a small amount. So, yeah, I don't see where it's going to go. The protests have been good, but why are the protests being successful now? It's because fans can't go into the grounds. It's mm-hmm. difficult to organise these protests. If they, if, if fans are in grounds right now, I don't think you'd have got the protests on the same scale as you got at Manchester United or Chelsea. You know, it, protests would have been happening in the ground. But by that point, the Glazers or whoever it is have got your money and you're in the ground. They're yeah. not going to bother. They're not. They're not that bothered then. Um, so yeah, I feel like they're not going to run over into next season because once they're back in grounds, you're not going to get the same um, motivation to do it. Um, and I think to force real change, these fan groups have to continue to have these protests game after game after game you can't stop for one game or two games you're gonna to have to do it for 10 20 30 games before you really get what you want from it and i just don't don't think any of the fan bases have that stamina for for protest to really force that change so i feel like there's been some good things to come out of what have happened but at the end of the day we're, we're back to back to the point where we were originally the the television deal with bt and sky has been rolled over you know we're going to get more of the same we're, we're going to maintain the status quo as we have it now we're not going to really force that that really good competitive change that everybody wants to see because 
there's too many people invested in dress. It's just not going to happen. No, I, I absolutely, that's I, absolutely right. And I, I agree with the earlier point about the, uh, just the actual financial difficulty of implementing any kind of, any kind of structural change to a private entity. Um, I, I mean, I, I think unfortunately, just because it didn't happen this time doesn't mean the idea has gone away. And I, I think while the fans were, were rightly celebrating, I mean, if they're, if they're realistic, they won't over-exaggerate, I suppose, the extent to which they can hold back the tide in, in the future, even, even with some kind of uh, fan involvement on boards. I mean, for now, the, the real power remains in the three places that it did before, the, the, um, the club owners, the players and their agents, and, and the broadcasters. I mean, you know, without, obviously, without the TV money, the, any concept like that is a non-starter. Um, I, I can see the, the Champions League eventually morphing into uh, Super League by default. I mean, it, it already, you know, is in all but name, really, um, only because I think UEFA will want to make sure they, they, they don't get left out by any uh, any structural changes. But I, I, I think, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of stating the obvious that, that what happened with the ESL was pretty much inevitable and, and probably because of the two things, the, the sky money and the start of the Premier League, and then doing away with the European Cup and, and, and creating a situation where teams ended up aiming to finish fourth. Um, I, you know, I, I'm not saying that that hasn't made the end of the season more exciting. I mean, think how this season would be if only one team was was going to qualify for Europe. But uh, but it changed, changed the mentality of the, the game and it made... The clubs who were already, you know, becoming global brands, um, I mean, their, 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 their focus is more on the Deloitte rich list than their domestic league table at the moment. So, uh, unfortunately, I think the concept will be back, uh, maybe not for a while, but the, any changes that happen in the interim are, are, are only going to benefit the rich clubs. And I, and I think, as, as Jake said, at the end of the day, the, 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 you know, the protests may continue, but the fans only real power uh, lies in not going and, and no one's, no one's probably going to go that far. Or if some people do, somebody will just replace them in their seat. Um, I did want to touch on a couple of things. So uh, Jim, you mentioned that Chelsea and Tottenham are both trying this. Uh, Chelsea will have two people that are able to be observers at team board meetings. And Jake, this may be a surprise, but Tottenham's one allegedly will be able to actually vote with the board despite being a non-executive member. Um, So their vote would actually be included. Um, It doesn't exist yet. So, you know, mild asterisks, but that's at least what the statement claimed. Um, So if if that happens, that'd be great. I think there's already some concern with with some people in the Tottenham Hotspur Supporters Trust and other fans that that'll end up kind of being a, um, like you said, kind of just a a, uh, patched over crack. And then eventually they could probably sway that person with, you know, club stuff. Um, to get the votes that they want. But in theory, they would have one. Um, All right, we'll go from there to talking a little bit about award season, which obviously we're in just by uh, this time next week. The season will be over. But I was curious who you guys thought deserved most to be manager of the year this year. I mean, I think the obvious candidate is still Pep Guardiola. Um, It's very, very difficult to... uh, Obviously, you can argue against it, but I think in terms of the actual award if you look at all things being equal and don't factor in too much of the kind of money side of things, then Manchester City started pretty badly um, this season and they've turned things around in quite spectacular fashion and it's basically been a procession um, for for quite a long way. 
um, whether that's down to a lack of credible opposition or kind of a, a significant improvement from uh, Manchester City, particularly in defence. I think the, the signing of Ruben Diaz just after Leicester won um, at the Etihad 5-2 is just like it's night and day, the difference between um, the two kind of before and after level of performance. And although... You know they they have won the league. They'll probably do so by a, a significant margin. Um, and they've also won a domestic trophy in the the Carabao Cup. And they're in a, a Champions League final, which is ground previously untrodden by Manchester City, even though they've been uh, domestically very very successful. That that European title has continued to elude them. You know until potentially this year. Um, so I think it's difficult to argue against him. But it's also I know that's also an obvious choice because. They've got a huge budget. They had a brilliant team beforehand, and maybe it's not quite in the spirit of the conversation to to kind of automatically default to uh, one of the world's best managers with one of the world's best teams and um, a bucket load of money to spend. Um, I would obviously throw my hat into the ring for Brendan Rodgers um, on the basis of what Leicester City have been able to achieve this year. Obviously, I think that would probably depend upon a Champions League spot being secured. Um, I think it's been a great season regardless, especially now there's some silverware in the cabinet. Um, but I, I do think if, if Leicester are able to get into the top four and seal a first domestic uh, cup in 21 years um, in the same season that, you know, we faced such kind of difficulties. And I know everyone has it's the same kind of level playing field for everybody. But if we're able to do that, I do think he he deserves to be considered in that um, in that kind of conversation. Um, it's not like Leicester were that far away last year, but kind of like building and kind of incremental improvement um, to the point where you can claim some silverware and potentially still outlast several teams with, with huge budgets um, to, to get into the Champions League is you know a, a monumental achievement and you know I think you know I was listening to some some media coverage today and they were saying that Rogers needed something like this um in England to kind of prove that he's not a, a nearly man like a lot of people assumed he would be um after what happened with Liverpool um in his spell there obviously went to Celtic and did amazing won everything there was to win and maybe that improved that kind of level of performance is only being further um demonstrated of how impressive that is by what's happened this season in the SPL with Rangers finishing top of the league. But I do think he, he deserves a lot of credit in that kind of manager of the year discussion, just based on the kind of performances um, that we've put in and that hopefully the end result that comes in a couple of games time. Yeah, I think I've, I've got to agree on Guardiola and Rodgers. Um, you know, Rodgers going from missing out on the Champions League last year to, to winning an FA Cup and potentially finishing in the top four if they do manage it. Would, would represent a great season, especially if it's so rare for um, a team that isn't one of the traditional top six to, to finish in the top four. It's getting harder and harder. So to, to, to compete at that level two years in a row uh, definitely deserves some sort of recognition uh, and to win a trophy as well. This sort of adds a, um, adds a bit of polish to that, that season for him. Um, aside from those two, I think you'd probably have to give a mention to um, Marcelo Bielsa. I think that the way Leeds have played this year has been uh, great. They've definitely um, you know, completely um, come up and played their way, a style that we're so unused to in the Premier League. Uh, I think even when we've seen promoted teams before, like Wolves and uh, Sheffield United, they haven't played with such attack and intent. And just, it's, it's, it's so great to watch. And the fact that they're going to finish in the top half and, and they've recorded some eye-catching results, especially recently with the wins at, 
against Man City and uh, Tottenham, and then the draws against Man United and uh, Liverpool. That I think they definitely deserve some sort of recognition. So he'd be in the conversation for me. Um, and then you could maybe look at, at Dean Smith. Maybe um, their, their season sort of. He probably would have been a contender a few a couple of months ago. Maybe Grealish had avoided injury, they'd have they'd maintained their level of results and, and pushed on like West Ham have. But um, yeah, um, I think the fact that they just avoided relegation last year um, to be so comfortable this year and, and play such good football, especially for the first half of the season. Um, he deserves some credit for that. And then there's David Moyes as well, um, who's obviously done excellently, but they've sort of dropped off a little bit recently. Um, but it's still a great season, especially, remember, I think I came on this podcast after maybe like two games and, and West Ham had an awful start to the season. They had games against, like, I think it was um, Leicester, Liverpool, um, Chelsea, Wolves, I think it was. And, and we were talking about when they were going to get their first win. So to go from that and to... to challenge for the top four even if they have dropped off it I think it's a really good season and Moyes has definitely um, repaired his reputation from the disappointing spell at Sunderland and Manchester United as well I think he did okay at West Ham last time but this time he definitely seems back to being the David Moyes we saw at Everton so yeah he definitely deserves a bit of credit as well so I'd I'd probably I'd probably give it to Rodgers to be fair Um, but I think that either Guardiola Bielsa or um, Moyes would be worthy winners as well yeah, no, it's, it's been a great season for Rodgers for all the reasons that, that both of you have outlined. And, and it just makes you think what what he must have thought to be talked about in connection, connection with his first job. I mean, you know, Nagelsmann basically signed on with Bayern as soon as he could just to avoid the speculation linking him with us. So I don't think there was ever any uh, remote possibility that, that Rodgers would end up at, uh, at White Hart Lane. Uh, I also agree about David Moyes. I think, you know, wherever um, we, we still don't know how, how West Ham's season will end up. But if, if he had been able to get them into a Champions League spot, there'd be a good shout for him. Uh, but I, I think, as you say, wherever they finish up, they'll be happy with, with what he's done this year and the platform that it gives them for next season, especially if they can hold on to Lingard. But I don't know what the situation with that. I mean, Tuckle in a, in a way, Tuckle is like two games away from ending up with nothing, um, considering uh, how, what, a, what a, a pretty remarkable short season he's had, you know, when you think about it. Uh, if they, for whatever reason, if they were to drop out of the top four and lose the Champions League, um, uh, you know that that would that would not be a good, would be a, not be a good track record in your first season. But but I I I think that shouldn't take away from what he has achieved there. Uh, I mean, he came in with basically Lampard's players, saw what was wrong, got the defense playing with tremendous uh, confidence, and that spread through the rest of the, the rest of the team, and they went on a uh, an excellent. An, an excellent run so you know he he deserves credit for that but I, I think unfortunately he's he's kind of on the on the edge on the precipice of um of watching it all fall to bits um but yeah i mean it I, as you've said it's hard it's hard to see past uh guardiola i mean guardiola has, has basically become like alex ferguson the, the bar by which everybody else is judged at the moment yeah, a lot of um, kind of side comments for, for Moyes. If West Ham had somehow gotten to the Champions League, would that have been enough for you? Is he that close? Or do you guys just think that, that the clubs that are finishing higher up the table are, are more deserving? I think he probably, I don't know. It's difficult with 
to oust Guardiola if they win a treble, um, even with the kind of caveats over money and stuff. Fair. But I think if, if, if Moyes gets a top four place, it means that probably Leicester don't, for example, which kind of tilts the, the conversation in his favour even further because, uh, as Jake pointed out, um, it didn't look particularly good at the start of the season and you would have kind of been forgiven for thinking they might be in a relegation battle rather than a, a top four challenge. Um, and yes, it's petered out, but ultimately you have to kind of judge it on that, you know, that end result. And it, they've been fantastic for such a good portion of the season. Um, but yeah, if they got a top four place, then I think he's he's definitely in that mix, probably, you know, alongside someone like Rogers, who's probably a very honourable mention in an ultimately losing cause. I think it's also interesting that, that none of us mentioned Solskjaer. You know, he's in a Europe... Yeah final he's, he's nailed on second in the table uh, yeah I mean I, I think it's just uh, the concept of manager of the year should be someone who has taken a team uh, the most improvement and brought the yeah. most improvement to the team that was already there or, or uh, did better than they did last year by a significant margin and, and by that token I mean Rogers is, uh, Rogers is certainly, uh, certainly in the mix All right, Uh, we will take a quick break and then we'll be back with club-specific questions for each of our guests. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, Jim, we'll start off with you. I promised we could talk more about the FA Cup, so here we go. Obviously, uh, a tremendous day for Leicester on the whole. What were your feelings throughout the whole match, and and how much did the win mean to the fan base at large? Um, It was just, yeah, it's surreal. I don't think it's quite sunk in yet, um, to be honest. I'm not sure it will maybe until I see the trophy in person, because I guess there'll be some kind of parade around the stadium with it on. Uh, on Sunday at the, the Tottenham game. But in terms of the match itself, it was a typical final, I guess, um, in the sense that it was very tight and cagey early on. Both managers kind of set up to nullify the opposition kind of more than kind of play their own game. And I think that's probably something that Tuchel has done several times. Um, I haven't kind of rewatched his his cup finals in Germany or, or with PSG, but it seems to me one of the kind of main criticisms of him is that he can get teams to finals, but maybe he's a little bit too cautious um, and a little bit too passive uh, in those games, which potentially was the situation, you know, he left out Pulisic. I mean, they've got an incredible wealth of, of players anyway, but like Pulisic on the bench, for example, matching Leicester's kind of 3-4-3 slash 3-5-2 
situation kind of meant that the game was a little bit of a stalemate first half. Chelsea definitely had the better of it um, in terms of possession and created some decent chances, albeit probably didn't work um, Schmeichlin the way that they would have wanted to. And then second half, Leicester seemed to grow into it a lot more. Um, maybe that was the game plan, I don't know, just to kind of keep things tight early doors, get settled the nerves, um, get the crowd on board and, and then kind of try and make it a 45-minute match, basically, from nil-nil. Um, and if that was the case, then it kind of worked to perfection and it was a moment of magic that, that won it ultimately from Tielemans. But, you know, that's on a knife edge. The block from Iose Perez to get the ball back and turn the ball over could quite easily have gone against you on another day because it bounces up and hits his hand off of his thigh. Um, I know in the modern kind of interpretation of that's probably not handball, but, you know, that's, that's on a knife edge. Um, then, obviously... Casper makes two incredible saves. The second one, particularly from Mason Mount, I've, I've genuinely got no idea how it doesn't break his wrist and go in because Mount catches it just on the bounce and he hits it so flush from relatively close range and Schmeichel manages to get across and save it. And I think at that point, maybe the Chelsea kind of head start to go down a little bit in the sense of like, it's just not our day here. Like we've tried everything we possibly can. We've thrown everything at this team and, uh, we've just not been able to, to, to find a way through. Um, and, and then obviously the, the ultimate kind of VAR guess uh, moment, you know, the, the most high profile kind of VAR moment that we've seen possibly um, with with Chilwell's disallowed goal for a very, very marginal offside, um, which I know probably doesn't leave the best taste in people's mouths, um, given how kind of marginal it was. And it's not like a, clear and obvious error. I know it's the, the protocol is different for VAR on, on offsides, but it's one of those that could probably be held up as a, an example of how frame rates and kind of where you pause the ball in terms of when it leaves a player's foot can make a massive difference. But it went our way on the day and yeah, it just feels very surreal. I think I aged a decade in that last 10 minutes with uh, with all the kind of back and forth because we, you know, we had such a backs against the wall approach brought Wes Morgan off the bench who hasn't played a Premier League game in months and months and months. I think the last time we played was a bit of a dead rubber against Ike Athens in the uh, in the Europa League. So, yeah, he's it was kind of his swan song and it wouldn't surprise me if he retired now. Um, just kind of elated, really. And, yeah, it doesn't quite feel real yet, but hopefully it will do in the next few days. Yeah, well, congrats again. And like Steve mentioned, there was a really um, nice moment, obviously, with the, the owner being brought down, obviously, the big banner of, of his father who passed away tragically in that helicopter accident and everything like that. Um, what did that moment mean for, for those that aren't as familiar with Lester or that general story? I think it's it, it's difficult to explain. Like, I think it's the perfect kind of antidote to this ESL um, talk that, that's been so rife in the last kind of month or so. Um, the the club was brought, obviously, by, by relatively unknown Thai owners, uh, the King Power Group, um, Vich- Kun Vichai, who, who was the chairman uh, previously, as you mentioned, Kevin, who tragically passed um, a couple of years ago in that helicopter accident. And his son, Top, was, was vice chairman, was always very heavily involved. It was brought as a project for the two of them. Um, so it's not like he was parachuted into a role that he was unfamiliar with, but he stepped up into the kind of t- chairman role and, and basically continued all the good work that his father um, laid, both for the club um, in terms of the infrastructure. Um, you know, there's a new £100 million training ground for the club, um, which has meant that the women's um, 
team has been able to take over the old training ground. They've just been promoted to the WSL. Um, and the, the, the owners are kind of full in support of that, but also an amazing amount of money has been pumped into um, local projects in Leicester and the, the kind of surrounding areas that they've been a, an unmitigated success, essentially, in terms of ownership, both on and off the field. It's it's really difficult to overstate how amazing the, the King Power kind of group and family have been. And I think, you know, Steve quite rightly kind of cited the example of a Super Bowl winning owner being presented the trophy, you know, top who is Vichar's son um he kind of took a back seat he didn't he didn't want to get down on the pitch and it was only when Casper who's the captain uh went over to kind of beckon him down so that he could celebrate and I think you can just see from those scenes of him you know holding the cup and the players wanting him to be involved how much it meant to them and that is as close to kind of genuine appreciation and adoration as you're going to get from a football club and its ownership so yeah it, it meant an incredible amount and I think it was just the perfect kind of not ending to the story because we obviously hope there is way more success in in the future as well but if this is the peak of Leicester's kind of recent run and hopefully we hope there's much more to come but if it is then I think it's a very poignant kind of high point to, to reach given everything that's gone before yeah, and obviously, if if this was the end of your cycle, you know, a Premier League title <laughs> yeah. and an FA Cup, not too bad, but it's still a really young squad. And like Steve was saying, unlikely that Rodgers would want to leave at this point. Um, one last quick one. If you had had your choice on Friday of winning the FA Cup or getting that Champions League spot, you would have taken the Cup? I think before on Friday, if you'd have asked me, I probably would have said the top four because mm. the financial implications of that are so massive in the sense of you can win the Europa League and not get as much prize and TV money as getting into the group stage um, of the Champions League. It is night and day, the difference in revenue. And after posting a £70 million loss for the last calendar year due to COVID, um, with a high wages to turnover ratio um, as well, you know, we do... It's not like Leicester have done this on a shoestring. They've they spent less than probably every other top six club, but we're not like we're not finding players at the local recreational ground. Like we are paying hundred thousand pound a week wages to some of our squad, um, and we do only have a thirty-two thousand seat stadium, and there's only so much in terms of sponsorship and stuff that you can bring in. So if you'd have asked me on Friday, um, I probably would have taken the top four spot. But you know what? The way that went down on Saturday, yeah, I would not trade a top four spot for that cup and the way that it happened and the memories that it will have created for not just the fans that were there, but for a generation, especially given the last year and a half and what people have been through. I think it was kind of like a real shining moment, not just for for Leicester and Leicester City fans, but maybe for fans of, you know, any club outside the top six, I guess, or any kind of underdog story that, yeah, it's not like Roy the Rovers stuff. It's not a, it's not a League Two club upsetting a, a Premier League team, but we were definitely the underdogs in terms of financial stature and status. So, yeah, hopefully it was a kind of like a, a real kind of result for the general public and anyone that's not kind of closely associated with Chelsea, I guess. Yeah, as a Tottenham fan, I certainly didn't hate Chelsea finding out what no, feels like losing to the fairy tale of Leicester. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jake, we'll come to you now to talk a little bit about Newcastle. So, 
Steve Bruce was manager of the month. That's a thing that has now occurred. It's the first in his managerial career. Um, just wanted to get your take on that happening the the, the uh, last month that you've had that basically secured your safety. And if him winning this is any indication of his longevity uh, there at Newcastle. He did win manager of the month. Um, but we started the month in 17th position. I believe we ended it in 17th position. So, um, Not 18. <laughs> I think it's... Yeah, well, it speaks it speaks to the position we were in and how badly it had gone before. That uh, I think it was two wins and two draws could only lift us. Uh, well, it could lift us anywhere. We stayed in the same place. So, um, yeah, it, it, to be fair, it's gone well for him. After the Brighton game, going into the international break, it seemed like he he was a uh, he was gone. I think any other club would have sacked him at that point. And then the statement coming out the next day saying that they were back him until the end of the season. It did seem like a club that wanted to go down because uh, it, if you watch that game, um, that it didn't look like the players were playing for him. It just looked like it was the end of the road for him. Um, but to be fair, it's, it's picked up since then. I, I think it was uh, Tottenham was the, the first game back, and uh, we played quite well mm. in that game. Uh, got the late equaliser. Probably should have won that game. To be fair, on the on the chances that both teams had, um, and then we beat West Ham. Um, I think beat Burnley as well before that, so it was quite a it was quite a good recovery. Um, and then drawing to to Liverpool, and then he, he even beating Leicester last week. It wasn't I don't think that was I think that was in the month of May, so maybe he's pushing for it next month as well. But um, yeah, it's definitely been a turnaround. Um, I mean, he he put Bruce put it simply as uh, getting our best players back, which which does help, but it's been a little bit more than that. I think that. The style we're playing suits the team better. I think that the, the formations um, suits them. I think getting Matt Ritchie back in the team has had a massive impact. I think the way he carries himself, he's he's a leader on the pitch. He he demands 100% from everybody. We've definitely seen a, an increase in our intensity, which was lack, uh, lacking before. Um, so yeah, it's been a tantrum. I don't think that, you know, we spoke about having fans back in the ground earlier. I think if fans are on the ground this year, I don't think Steve Bruce would still be Newcastle manager. I think that it's going to be difficult um, for him to rebuild that that relationship with the fans. Because even after the good results he had, like we beat Leicester last week, such a good performance. Um, then he went on to national radio, I think it was Monday or Tuesday, and he just spoke about how the fans have such high expectations. And it, it, the comments he was making what. You know, he had an opportunity there to rebuild a sort of relationship, and he just sort of again just spoke about how unfair it is that the expectations that Newcastle fans have, which aren't even that high. If you look back at, at when we had Benitez, I I hate going back to Benitez, but during that time we were finishing pretty much in the same position, same amount of points, playing the same sort of football. But the way he spoke, he sort of inspired the fan base. And at that time, pundits were saying, "Why does everybody like? Why do they all like Benitez so much? The football's not that good." No, it's because he, he he was aiming for something. There was a little bit of ambition there. He didn't want you to settle for where we were. He wanted to grow the club. Whereas Bruce is very much, I'm here to keep the team up. That's what I'm doing. Newcastle have been a, a lower half of the Premier League team for several years now. And it's just that lack of ambition that he speaks about. It's just so, so difficult to back him, even when he does well. He deserves a lot of credit for the recent run. But at the same time, you can't, one good month doesn't make up for, you know, four or five months before that of absolutely terrible football. Um, and it, it, if um, there's a reason why under him we've been constantly at the bottom of the table, 
and we've been somewhat fortunate for for a lot of those matches um for a lot of that time not to be in the bottom three so I don't think it's it's he's got a long way to go to rebuild the trust and it'll be interesting to see what sort of reaction he gets in the week um when fans are back in St James's Park and it, this is another indication of where the fan base are at the moment so we've had what is it, over a year without founding the stadium? The initial ballot didn't even sell out of the tickets. And that's 10,000 tickets. Couldn't even sell those out. And I think Newcastle fans are famous for going, whatever happens, fill the ground. We had, I think we had 50,000 in the championship. Can't even sell 10,000 tickets to, the, to season ticket holders. So, yeah, that it doesn't look good. And if, we're, if we get full ground, uh, crowds back in next year, I don't think we're going to see the numbers at St. James Park that we saw before. Gotcha. Well, certainly uh, be interesting to kind of keep track of that. At the end of that whole thing, do you think Steve Bruce is going to be manager day one? Um, I don't know. I, if you ask me now, I'd say yes, because of the, the, the way he's ended the season. Um, and that Mike actually won't want to sack him if he doesn't have to. Um, I think there were rumours that he might, have, he might have been thinking about walking away, but I, the way he's spoken before the Man City game, it doesn't seem like that. It's a option he's really considering properly so um yeah, i think so unless something happens court case related that that facilitates a takeover which i doubt will happen um if mike actually is still the, the owner in uh in august and i expect steve bruce to still be the manager as well well that's probably not inspiring <laughs> as a newcastle fan like you said could could result in a decreased attendance if nothing else um all right steve we'll come to you now to talk a little bit about tottenham uh not really the season that was hoped for at the start of it but we're seeing a little bit of resuscitation from players here um post Mourinho. obviously the biggest name that was cast the furthest from the squad that's now returning is deli ali had another decent match today has, has been playing pretty well all around without too many uh direct gold contributions but I'm just curious if you think he can reach the heights that he was at uh under Pochettino or if you think maybe he, he's kind of maxed out on potential and now is just kind of uh maybe less talismanic than we once hoped yeah no I mean I I think Rand Mason talking him up today in the press uh, as a potential inclusion in Southgate's Euro squad I think is probably a little uh uh a little over the top, but um, the thing is, there was never any doubt. We all knew Delhi was a talented player uh, right from day one. We knew he was. The, the problem was he sort of plateaued um, for a while, and we weren't sure exactly why or or how he was going to get that back. But um, you know, I, I, he looked he looked good today, and he looked as if it's too little, too late. Basically, is is where we are with uh, a lot of the a lot of the squad at the moment. I mean, what he needed was a good run of games to get his fitness and his confidence back. Um, you know, with every game that he plays now, whether you believe the 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 pundits about uh, oh Ryan only plays his mates, well, fair enough. You know, his, his mates happen to be the the best players at the at the club. Well, most of them, um, but. Uh, the thing with Delhi is you, you sort of look at him and you say, well, why couldn't he play like that all season? It's the inconsistency. It's like everything else at, at, at Tottenham, unfortunately, Kev, as you know. I mean, today's, today's game was like a, a you know perfect example. It was like, almost like our season in microcosm, except it was like the, the good part of our season, as it turned out. I mean, we were we looked really lackluster in that in that first half, and and you could tell that you know it wasn't it wasn't clicking between between Delhi, Bale, and and, and Harry. 
and Son as well. And and you know we were very lucky actually in that first half that Wolves um, Wolves finishing was was off. Uh, but we, you know we still looked looked shaky. You know every time a move broke down we were on the back foot and 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 we looked very vulnerable. Particularly I think when someone like Traore you know runs straight at you. But um, but as I say you know we saw some good touches from Delhi and and we know he's a good player. And uh, if if having a, a better relationship with someone you used to play with helps you uh, in motivating yourself and and fitting better into the team that the manager decides is um, uh, is how he wants to represent the club, then uh, then I'm all for it. Uh, I I hope Delhi stays. I think everything is kind of uh, up in the air at the moment with with everything as <laughs> and that's not uh, not an unusual situation for Tottenham coming to the end of the season but <clears throat> you know Ran Ran Mason has done has done very you know he's won three or four league games um so far and and uh, it, it was it was a poison chalice to begin with let's be honest but uh, you know I, I think his relationship with the individual players that he played with can't be understated in actually motivating them to uh, uh, to perform for him, and I think we're seeing a little bit of this. But even even without you know all the the Mourinho drama and the speculation and the uncertainty about wh- where we're going next, I mean this this has been a very Spursy season, and uh, you know it, it probably would have been unusual to expect uh, anything else really. Gotcha. And then uh, another uh, player that has been a bit uh, mercurial at times, Gareth Bale, has been showing up in matches against some of the smaller sides, maybe some disappointing matches against some of the bigger ones. Uh, Obviously, a big debate in the Tottenham fan base right now is, do you take him back? Um, All reports say that we have the option to bring him back on the exact same terms that we had him this year, which was a loan of 40-60 split of his wages with Real Madrid. So yeah, that's the question. Do do you want Bale back next year, or are you worried at all about what what that could mean at that position with, you know, obviously the likes of Bergwijn and Sessegnon maybe not getting minutes? Yeah, I think that's what worries me more than than Bale's consistency, is that uh, it it blocks out Bergwijn, and uh, and again, Sessegnon is one of those uh, unknown factors that we, uh, we we're not sure how that's going to unfold. I'll tell you what I don't want, and, and obviously with Zidane leaving at Real Madrid, we don't know who's going to be uh, taking over there and what their attitude might be to that to that loan arrangement. Um, I'll tell you what I don't want is Bale playing for another Premiership club. And I know Ancelotti has has already come out and said that you know if if Spurs don't uh, don't renew the loan, that he would be keen on on taking him to Goodison. Um, so I think that would be uh, something that uh, we, you know we'd have to we'd have to explore and see what the um, what the difference is. I, I, I think it's impossible to say what would be the best outcome, not just for the club but for for Gareth at the moment, because we don't know who the new boss is going to be. Um, so I think everything really is in abeyance until uh, until we get a steer on on how that what direction that might take. But certainly what you were saying in terms of, you know, if if we bring him back on the current uh, arrangement, uh, he's still, you know, <laughs> the highest played player at the club. And are we getting a significant return for 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 that uh, for that outlay? Um, or do you do you sort of look the other way because it's Gareth Bale? It, it's It's a difficult one. Yeah. And it's curious to see what Levy will do, because he's been uh 
hold a lot more to doing what he wants versus what he thinks is best of late with both the Mourinho signing, with the Bale signing initially. So we'll see uh, which way he falls there. Um, but we'll head next into Player Watch, where I just wanted to get a quick take from you guys on, on the players that might be heading towards the exit door this summer. Um, hopefully no one. Um, but yeah, I think there will be interest around um, several uh, Leicester players, as there always is, but hopefully with the covid situation financially one of the unmitigated kind of well one of the unintended consequences of that might be it's quite difficult to find 50 60 70 million pounds um for a player um obviously damari gray's out at leverkusen at the moment we've spoken about him and being on the way out that was the kind of one that initially sprung to mind the last time we spoke I don't know really. I guess Madison is probably the one that you of the big players that you kind of don't want to lose, but it is potentially on that precipice. It felt a bit like um, he would be the next domino to fall, uh, especially after Chilwell went to Chelsea. Um, so there could be interest in him, but he's not finished the season particularly well. He's been out injured a lot. Um, and I don't necessarily think someone's going to step up and pay what would be required. Um, for him. Um, Chenzi Under is going to go back to Roma. Obviously, um, his loan will be finished. I don't think he'll be staying on. I know there was an option to buy. I don't think we'll be activating that based on what he's done. And like I said, I wouldn't be surprised if Wes Morgan called it a day. Um, he's 37 now. He's played three Premier League games, I think, this year um, and is already on the coaching staff. So, I can't imagine there'd be too much player turnover, but yeah, just hope we hope we hold on to all the key pieces. Yeah, I hope that, that Newcastle can be buying rather than selling, but um, there's always a risk. I think I saw Saint Maximan linked with Roma um, today, or I think it was yesterday. Which, I mean, I can't see him going to play under Jose Mourinho. He's probably the least Jose Mourinho player I can I can imagine. He's very uh, individualistic and uh, I think he quite enjoys being the, <laughs> the best player at a smaller club rather than that's why he's had problems before I think it was at Monaco he was very much uh, a problem for the manager because he wasn't wanting to to be a the second star after you know yeah Mbappe's and people like that so I think that he quite enjoys playing for Newcastle he's just he's on a six-year contract as well although can never rule out Mike Ashley selling him I can't see him going to a team like Roma I think it would be a uh, I just don't think he really wants to leave at the moment. Um, I could see maybe see Elmer on leave, and I think we just never really found the right place for him in the team. Um, and I could see him doing really well under, you know, if, say if a, a lead came into him, uh, came in for him, I could see he'd be a really good fit for Bielsa. So it'd be interesting to see if there's any interest in him. His agent's been very open about talking about a move away. So we'll see. Um, I don't know if he's really done enough to earn a, a move away. Um, but he's the one I can maybe see going at some point. Um, and I think we'll probably see. I think Andy Carroll won't sign a new contract. Fernandez probably won't sign a new contract. I think we need to um, have a little bit of a, a refresh of the squad, especially at the back, because we're so one pace there. And we seem to be conceding two or three goals every week, even if we are winning a few matches. So um, that's the area we need to strengthen. So to, to make room, we're going to have to lose a few there. Uh, and I could see Caldarlo leaving. Um, I think he did enough during his run in the team to to prove that he can play regularly in the Premier League. Um, but he's not a better keeper than Martin Dubravka. So maybe there'll be a, a club, maybe a promoted team or, um, I don't know, West Brom, if they lose Sam Johnston, maybe they would want to spend a bit of money on Carl Darlow. Or um, I think he's been linked to Tottenham before, maybe as a, 
a replacement for Joe Hart, a little bit of a better number two. Yeah. Um, could see him definitely doing that at a better team. So, um, yeah, he's he's one that I could maybe see leaving. But um, it's going to be difficult to sell players. Uh, if You know, if you're a Newcastle and you're trying to sell a player that you don't want, like a Dwight Gale, to make some money to, to spend yourself. I think in a COVID-impacted market, you know, it's going to be difficult selling your best players, let alone um, the players you don't want. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what happens. But um, hopefully we move a few on and uh, strengthen our own squad because um, although we've had a good end to the season, we've definitely got um, issues to fix if we want to, to push on and be clear of a relegation fight next year. I'm just going to make a point about Darlow, and I think uh, uh, Jake uh, made that. That was a very good point, actually. I think he would be an upgrade on Joe Hart as a, as a backup, but uh, I think we're getting to the point now where we're not sure if Hugo's going to stay. Um, uh, we we might be looking to, uh, to get a, a new number one at some point uh, rather than just have a good, solid, reliable backup, which I, I think Hart has been to an extent, uh, and Darlow, I think, would be. Um, so I think the, the uh, goalkeeper position at, at Spurs is, is certainly one that uh, we're going to have to address at some point. Uh, Pacho has mentioned that there was going to be a painful rebuild coming at some point soon, and it feels like it might be now. Although Jake just mentioned it's probably going to be hard to get rid of some of the players that, that we don't want, but, but who do you picture heading towards the exit door? It, 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 you could probably, in this circumstance, you could probably say most of them, and, and it wouldn't sound terribly sarcastic. Um, but I, I think, obviously, as you know, Kevin, I mean, everything depends on on the big one. I mean, if Daniel Levy uh, ha- has a sense that Harry is going to be out the door anyway, then it totally changes the equation on the new manager. Uh, the temptation to do a tear down and a rebuild by you know unloading some of the higher value assets must be very very high in his mind, but. And, and I think with this unique situation in terms of revenue reduction, um, doing something like that now would at least allow a new manager to have some resources to to to, to bring in his own players. Um, I mean, you, you know, it's a typical sort of heading into the close season in disarray and, and uncertainty. Uh, this will be our 13th manager in 20 seasons, and it's another significant turning point, and I think made more significant um, uh, this year because of the uh, implosion of the ESL. And I, I thought, I'll be honest, I thought after the ESL collapsed that, that, that the board might be inclined to consider selling uh, the club. Um, but they seem to have pushed back on that so far. But it, it, it definitely puts a lot of pressure on whoever we end up bringing in and what sort of resources they're, they're going to have to work with. And it's going to be a classic kind of sell before you can, before you can buy situation. And, and, you know, we'll have to see if the Mourinho experience has, has chastened um, Daniel Levy at all. But uh, I suspect compared to the, the long-term financial implications of the ASL uh, debacle, I, I suspect not. Um, so, you know, uh, I hope Ryan Mason is still involved in the club in some way, no, no matter who uh, comes in to take over from him. I mean, he knows, obviously knows our youth setup, and there are obviously some bright spots like like uh, Oliver Skip and, and Ryan Sessegnon to, to factor into the mix for next season. But I, I really do think um, everything is is up in the air at the moment in in a way that I can't remember it being um, for, for for several seasons. 
Yeah, like even at the end of the Red Map era, you still knew most of the players were staying and then same with the end of the AVB era. This is like the managerial cycle and the player cycle both ending near yeah. the same time. So definitely a lot of change ahead. Uh, we've just passed the hour mark though, so that'll do it for us today. But folks, if you'd like to tell people where they could find you or anything you're working on, now would be a good time. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, I'm Jim. You can find me on Twitter at Jim Tweets. Yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, you can get me on Twitter at Chicharpin with two ends and anything I do, I'll post there. Yeah, thanks very much, uh, Kevin. Great conversation as always with these guys. Uh, you can get me on Twitter at Steve McGookin. Uh, and if you uh, want to follow uh, New York Spurs, it's at NY Spurs. And uh, my non-football writing is at northernslant.com. Thanks again. Yeah, and I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. You can find me on Twitter at Kevroff. You can find this show at EPL Roundtable on Twitter and all of your podcasting things, which you seem to have already done since you're hearing this. Um, but uh, thanks to these guys for coming on. It was a pleasure as always. And folks at home, we hope you keep listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.